Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Some of you will have noticed that we've taken some time away from the podcast over the last few months throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, but we are back to give you those interesting conversations from around the media industry. And we start with a catch-up from our recent Newswide conference, which happened earlier this month. Shirish Kulkarni is an award-winning freelance journalist who has 25 years of experience at all major UK TV broadcasters, BBC, Sky News, ITV, Channel 4 and Channel 5. Now, Shirish delivered an excellent workshop on how to rethink storytelling for news and in the process truly connect with your readers. Isn't it frustrating when we as journalists spend hours lovingly crafting a news story and then we go and look at our analytics dashboard and it has an average read of something like 10 seconds. Now, what if I told you the problem isn't that you've got a rubbish story? What if news stories are fundamentally at odds with the way we, as humans, are wired to tell and hear stories? Now we've got all the highlights from that session coming up, and that'll hopefully give you a few new storytelling ideas that you can implement into your newsroom, distributed or otherwise in these times of working from home, at zero cost. But first, before we jump in, here's something for your diary. As well as great editorial content, journalism.co.uk also provides media training for journalists, editors and other media professionals. On the 29th and 30th of September 2020, we've got an advanced podcasting course led by Jack Soper, who works for the BBC and has 20 years of experience as a producer and consultant. For that course and all the other great courses we run, head over to journalism.co.uk forward slash courses. So the ideas of storytelling and engagement are very of the moment right now. And I'm really not a big fan of fashions in journalism. But I think these ideas speak to something much deeper than trendiness because they're both central when we think of ourselves as communities, as a society. So that's Shirish, who led the workshop at News Rewired. And to come, he's really going to explore some of the failings of what has become traditional news storytelling, what stories actually are, and what readers really want from those stories. And to do that, we start with a couple of questions that Shirish poses to us. First of all, what is journalism for? Secondly, why did you choose to become a journalist? Um, or if you're not a journalist, why why do you think journalism is important? Thirdly, what is journalism's biggest editorial problem? And really to bind it all together, how much does the journalism you produce and consume meet these criteria? So really take a minute to answer these, pause and rewind this podcast as much as you need. For many people here, I guess I got into journalism because I, what, I wanted to make a difference, I wanted to tell untold stories, and I wanted to make the world a better place. Very naive, naive and idealistic then, and really I still am. But I think there are three key problems facing journalism. We have a huge and growing problem with trust. So the Reuters Digital News Report, which came out a couple of weeks ago, found that in the UK, just 28% of people say they can trust most news most of the time, and only 39% trust even the news they use most of the time. I mean, that's a huge problem for everyone. 
The other problem is, if we're not careful, our audience will literally die. Young people aren't engaging with news that much, and when they do, they're largely not engaging with traditional news brands. So if we don't somehow win them back, then 20 years' time, there won't be an industry, and none of us will have jobs. So I hope I'm not still working at 70 anyway. You take my point. So how can we engage young people with trusted and reputable sources of news? And briefly on the economics, we all know that there isn't going to be more money for journalism in the next five to 10 years. So it's been the same for all of the 25 years I've been doing this. Over time, fewer journalists have to do more things and produce more output. We may well have the benefits though of artificial intelligence or natural language generation. So how do we find a place for journalists in that future? And how do we build a way of telling stories that can adapt to that change and even help us do better news? Because I think that's what we all want to do. So the thing that I was trying to get at with that first exercise was that for me, what journalism is supposed to be for and what journalists actually do have become completely disentangled. We need to find a way of bringing them back together and intertwining those two things again. So if I ask myself or other journalists here what they go and get into journalism for, it would be something like to tell the truth, inform people, make a difference. What journalism for most journalists actually ends up being is largely following a formula, which is more about following a kind of habitual template of journalism than really informing the user. So very few conversations, unfortunately, in my working life have started with, what does the viewer or reader need to know here? They generally start with, this is what a TV package looks like, and these are the elements we need to fit that template. So let's just go away and do that. So as an example, when I worked on Sky News at 10 here, there was just a rule. Three of the packages in the programme had to have graphics in them. It didn't matter if they were actually there to help the viewer understand. It didn't matter what the editorial, it was just a rule. This is what we do. Three of the packages have graphics in them. So the problem is that as journalists, our first reference point is too often just other journalists, not viewers or readers. Our first thought is, what will my counterpart at ITV or Sky or The Telegraph or whatever think of this? In most of my jobs is about beating the BBC to breaking news. But what does that actually win us if the viewer doesn't get a chance to understand the story? It does not win us anything. So journalism right now is largely made for other journalists and that can't be it. If we're not even thinking about the user when we're making it, then I humbly submit that we're doing it all wrong. To demonstrate Shirish's next point about storytelling, we turn our attention to an experiment conducted in the 1940s. It's called the Heider-Simmel experiment. It was done by the psychologists Fritz Heider and Marianne Simmel. It's about a minute long and, you know, you can find it on YouTube if you search uh, the Heider-Simmel experiment. But basically, it's a very simple video. It's little more than a few lines, triangles and circles, moving about the screen. It's silent, there's no narration, no story, no script, nothing like that. But what's fascinating is if you watch it, your brain will interpret the movements into a story and it will interpret the shapes as characters which express emotions. Shirish's point here is that 
we as humans are hardwired for stories. We yearn for them in order to make sense of the world around us. So what exactly does this mean for our new stories and how we write them? What can we learn from this? So this isn't just a random phenomenon. There's a reason we're hardwired for stories. So on this, I really recommend a couple of books. Storytelling by Will Storr and The Storytelling Animal by Jonathan Gottschall. So as part of my research, I had the pleasure of talking to Jonathan a couple of times. And it's him that first pointed me in the direction of the Heidi Simmel experiment. So he talks about how stories do for the mind what play does for the body. So stories are a virtual reality simulator to help us navigate the world. So if you're a caveman or a cavewoman, how do you teach your cave child not to hang around outside the cave when the mammoths are about? Will you tell them about that time a mammoth ate a cave baby? Or you update it to fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel? Or you update it to monsters behind the sofa? Either way, you want your children to be careful and keep themselves safe. It's a virtual reality simulator. So stories are part of our evolution and we're absolutely hardwired for them. So even if stories don't exist, we create them. So if we want our new stories to connect and engage our audiences, surely we have to engage that natural yearning for stories that's just a fundamental part of us. So how do we do that? Well, right now, in most journalism settings, we're doing that all wrong. So let me ask you how easily you'd be able to narrate the hide a similar experiment if I played it backwards? Well, not very easily, because it wouldn't really make any sense. But how do we write most news stories? It's backwards. So we look at those traditional stories, say fairy tales, they just start at the beginning, once upon a time, they tell a story and they reach a conclusion, they get to the end. So news stories, largely, do the exact opposite of that. We use what's called the inverted pyramid structure, where the top line is the conclusion, and then as you read down, you get gradually less and less important information. So very often you've got the whole story in the headline. So Jonathan Gottschall put it to me, you've annihilated all suspense. There's actually no impetus to read further. So lots of people here will know that online news in particular is all about the analytics now. And we see so much kind of wringing of hands and teeth gnashing because the average read time of an article is like 10 seconds or something. Well, of course it is. We give the reader pretty much everything they need to know in the first two seconds. And then the story largely gets less useful to them and more boring. So why should they read any further than that? Why as journalists are we throwing away all the storytelling experience and hardwired evolutionary understanding of stories that's been built up over almost 3,000 years? Why are we fighting against that? I and mean, there is a rather prosaic reason for that, and that's the Telegraph, the original newswire because it was expensive and unreliable, so it makes sense to put as much information as near, as near as possible to the beginning, just in case you lost the end of it. So that worked for newspapers too a little bit, because you could just cut from the bottom if you needed to. So that made it easier for journalists, but is it better for the reader? I'm not sure. 
So let's not forget that we are also news readers. As Shira says, if there's parts of the news that we can't stand, how do we expect others to withstand it? So he asks us to think of three wants and needs. They can be one lines or a bit of an explanation in your mind. Um, and once you've identified those, be honest about what turns us off. So my my three would be, first of all, catch up. I need news sometimes to slow down. I need a way to catch up. If I miss the start of a moving news story, and you know that does happen, um, then that story can race ahead and make me feel left behind. And then it's difficult to catch up. But if I have a good way to backtrack, you know, then I will. Second of all, uh, not meant as a contradiction, but convenience. I feel like sometimes I do just need that quick hit of information, that top line or those three paragraphs, you know, because I'm busy and I don't want to start mining an article for that nugget of information I, I want. On the contrary, what's worse than a story that just doesn't get to the point? So having that convenience is not something I want to part with yet. And, you know, that for me relates to a need to be well informed on multiple subjects. Uh, last of all, off the top of my head, um, as a want rather than a need, I want to enjoy the news. I don't want the news to feel like research. I don't want the same stories all the time. You know, I'm fickle. I like variety. I want stories to jump out at me, compel me to read or, or listen, you know, challenge my worldview. So have a ponder about your three, um, your three wants and needs for the news and hold on to them as we explore this next section on what makes good storytelling. Um, storytellers are not just journalists, they're also comedians, game designers, theatre directors, you know, and Shirish says that we can learn something from these different practices. So he talked to a number of these different uh, trades and has arrived at six key principles which which makes good storytelling. But if we start with content, is the content we produce actually the most useful or valid to users? So for example, when we cover the budget here, the government's budget, the interactive content around that is always presented in terms of you'll be £150 a year better off. But frankly, that's not journalism. That is actually a political statement which is saying a small state, low tax economy is better for you per se. And that's not right. I mean, just at the very basic level, well-being isn't measured solely in monetary terms. And that tells us nothing about what our taxes are being spent on. People may want more money spent on health or education or even defence. So we need to be better at illustrating the trade-offs that lie behind those figures. So the other thing that my search really brought home to me was context. What, what audiences really want is context. So on the day news hugely prioritises breaking or at least moving events, but to the detriment of context, analysis or understanding. So I really recommend Philip Pullman's book on storytelling. It's called Demon Voices. So he talks about how he never uses the present tense because all it offers is a vertical slice to a horizontal life, like looking through vertical blinds and never really getting the full picture. So how do we provide that longer 
longitudinal context for users. Agency is the next thing, and when I talk about that, I mean both on the input side and the output side. So we need to offer ways in which people can feel more involved in the world and can make a difference. So on this, Vox Pops a really good example of this, because a you know, classic example is when you ask people, rail fares are going up, is that a bad thing? And people say, yes. Well, we never ask them how they think rail should be funded or what would be a better option. Or actually, if it's going into making the services better, maybe it is a good thing. So let's give our users agency and let them also be the authors of solutions, not just victims of the news. Similarly, the voice we use to communicate is horribly old-fashioned and formulaic. All I have to say on this is that I ran a workshop with a group of ethnic minority young people in Swansea and watched a BBC News bulletin with them. And it was a chastening experience and frankly a bit embarrassing because sitting there with 20 young people and seeing how quickly they were turned off by the content and tone was quite something. We need to find a much different way of talking to people which isn't just mired in journalese. And again, much of that language is just habits we've transferred from newspapers and to an entirely different medium. It just makes no sense. But for me, innovation and storytelling isn't just about telling stories differently, it's about telling different stories. You don't get that if you don't listen to different perspectives and really hear them and reflect them. So I've been told in the Sky Newsroom by a colleague, you don't really get racism anymore, do you? So that is horrifying on so many levels, but particularly when you think that this person often gets to decide what's on the news. So you do wonder what his reaction is when he's presented with stories that are explicitly about racism. So also six years ago, we had to really fight to get a story about far-right radicalisation of children in South Wales on the BBC Six Called News. I wish it hadn't been frighteningly prescient, but unfortunately it was. And the reason we had to fight for it was because, frankly, white male middle-class editors living in West London don't think it's a problem. Now, I know it's a problem because it could literally hit me in the face when I walk down the street. But until people are prepared to listen to those different perspectives beyond their own direct experience, then we can employ as many BAME interns as we like. It's not gonna make one iota of difference. So basically white men are gonna to have to do a bit of the work here. They can't leave it all up to us. Finally, narrative. As we discussed earlier, is the inverted pyramid structure really the best way of doing journalism? What are the alternatives? Is it linear narratives that start at the beginning and finish at the end? How might we incorporate timelines for that context? What other structures are there? Because what we're doing isn't working. So we've got nothing to lose by trying something different. So let's recap. Six principles for good storytelling are content, Context, agency, tone, diverse thought, and narrative structure. 
born out of those, Shirish developed seven prototypes of new storytelling and tested them on 1,200 people to see how they performed against traditional methods. As we've discussed, people get hung up on the format and think that's the innovation, the, the kind of shiny thing. But what we're actually trying to change and test here is the underlying journalism and rethinking that. So, all the prototypes were about the same story, the proposed HS2 rail line here in the UK. And you can see that we branded them as kind of BBC stories, so we could basically remove the brand variable when we were testing. And when I was writing these prototypes, I was basically really user focused. So I asked myself, as a user myself, what do I need to know? So one of those questions was actually, why is it called HS2? What's HS1? So <laughs> since I made this, I've actually asked lots of journalists this question, and only about 20% of people actually know the answer. But then why then does that never appear in any of our journalism? So we call this prototype a narrative accordion, because fundamentally it's a linear narrative, but split up into questions and answers, which you can read either from top to bottom or in the order that you want. You can expand and collapse those. This fits on a mobile phone screen and tells you all the information that you get in a thousand word BBC News story, but in less than half the time. It's linear, it gives the user a sense of agency, a chance to express their curiosity in whichever way it takes them, but it also provides a lot of useful information. And you'll notice there's no politics either, because actually, as the Reuters Institute report showed, Domestic politicians are the people injecting the most lack of trust for the people we trust the least. So if we don't need it, why put the politics in there? It's just a habitual thing. We put Conservatives said this, Labour said that. We don't need it. So that's a big turnoff. In another prototype, what we call the contextual timeline, we address directly that need for a wider context. And you can see here, We've looked ahead to what's going to happen in 2020, 2030, 2040. Now, most people would say that's not news, but actually having that grand scope helps us orientate ourselves, helps us know what's going to happen with the story rather than leaving us dropped in on the day with no sense of what's going to happen next. So, you know, that's a really important thing. We also go back to 1960 when Japan first had high-speed rail. Because one of the big things is like, why is Britain so terrible at high-speed rail? This isn't some new invention. And we need to understand that as well. So the important thing is the results of the tests. So when we looked at how enjoyable or interesting that people found the language layout, tone and format, or the navigation, the BBC article that we tested them against was in the bottom two of all the categories. So if people don't find what we have interesting, they're not going to go to it. And they don't even find it particularly informative. The narrative accordion which we looked at was the best by far. People absolutely loved it. If we look at knowledge transfer, how much information people actually got, we tested before and after and asked people to grade on a scale of one to 10. Then the BBC article actually did okay. It was closely grouped with the others. 
But the narrative accordion did best by far, particularly with under 35s. So they're getting, they were getting a third more information in half the time, which for me is just a huge win. Getting more knowledge in less time in a format they enjoy is a really huge win. If we look at then testing them against how, how engaging, informative or useful you find, what we did was test it against what people have now, the options they have to so the BBC, ITV, Sky News websites. And we created a kind of net, uh, net approval score. So if people, 50% of people thought it was better and 20% of people thought it was worse, then you got approval score of 30. But look here at the results for engaging with what we call the plain text dramatic. So that was a version I wrote, which is absolutely terrible, but was just my attempt to create a plain text narrative, which attempts badly to cast it in this, the structure of a three act drama. So the net approval rating for that was 57. So I think generally think that is actually just people just enjoyed a straightforward linear structure because it's what they're hardwired for, to start at the beginning and ends at the end. So you could all just implement that in your newsrooms tomorrow at zero cost, and you'd have a net approval rating of 60, almost, people who would think that was more engaging. But they also found it more informative and more useful too. So finally, we asked whether people found the stories more convenient, more engaging or help them understand. 83% of people found them more convenient for the narrative accordion, 77 for the contextual timeline. 75% of people think what we did was help them understand the story better than what they currently have available to them. This is, you know, 1,200 people. You could all implement this tomorrow and people would understand the stories better for less resource because they're easier to write and take less time. Shira said, and is absolutely worth repeating, the narrative accordion and the contextual timeline, they aren't templates to get hung up on. The point is that this demonstrates what is possible when you tailor your news storytelling to human needs. For expansion on what these are, he refers to Harkin and what they call the drivers of engagement. In other words, what desires cause people to engage what makes them do it it's because they have a desire to have a need met to learn to belong to help or to be heard so think about one of those and how you can shape your storytelling around one of those at the bureau local where shirish is a community organizer they introduced a daily check-in with their members throughout lockdown it's a 15 minute chat simply to process and here's why they did that now, some people would say that not everyone has the luxury of resources to do that. But I'm going to make the argument here that actually we don't have the luxury of not doing this, not getting good at deep connection. Why? Well, trust. Because this is how we drive engagement and trust. By being there at that check-in every day, people know who I am. People know who Bureau Local is, and they know that they can trust us. And we do things that aren't just for our good. We do things because they're the good of the people we're connecting with. So you may think that some of that stuff 
I've been talking about around community is very touchy-feely yoga pants, namaste stuff. But I'm really very hard-nosed about this because let's not beat around the bush about this. AI and natural language generation can already write stories more quickly and more accurately than we can. So I actually welcome that because lots of the journalism we do is really boring and just tedious. So what, where do we fit in this? Engagement and deep connection. And when we talk about deep connection, this doesn't just apply to our audiences. It's crucial that we think about whether all our colleagues and peers truly feel connected as well. We cannot underestimate the importance of diversity here. So if there's a particular message that I really want you to take away from this session, this is it. Until last week, the agenda for this conference was pretty white. And it's right that that's changed, but this can't be about tokenism or box ticking. You can hopefully see from my work and my CV and everything that I've done that I deserve to be here. So what this is about is we have an institutionally racist industry where people of colour are not seen and not heard. I had to leave my last job because I called out that institutional racism. I was effectively constructively dismissed. I had to go freelance to do investigations, do research, win awards, and finally be seen and heard. But not everyone in my position has that opportunity. It's easy to lose confidence and maybe start believing that they're right. You're not a good journalist. Your ideas really don't fit. So what I want you to do as my last exercise is for you to look around your organisation and the people of colour and check. Am I really seeing and hearing them? Look too at the people of colour who've left your organisation and ask yourself really honestly why that is. I hear a lot of big talk about internships and recruitment, but seriously, to stop with that. Because until we treat journalists of colour who already work in this industry with something that looks like respect, until we fix that, we should not be inviting anyone else into that toxic environment. So really the whole point of this workshop has been asking about asking ourselves fundamental questions about the purpose of journalism to find a way of building a better future. So part of that has to be about fixing our industry and you will have the power to do that. So you have to make that change. A huge thanks to Shirish for leading that session at News Rewired and for boldly talking about his own experiences there. For me, there's a lot to stew over. For the next time I'm pouring over the analytics of my articles, just to stop and think, what could be turning people off? How could this be more engaging? And when you go back to the beginning and what we said about what journalism should strive to do, what's its purpose? Does this article meet that criteria? And then we move on to think, well, is it how it's written? Could this story be told in a more effective way? Does it annihilate all the suspense? On a more personal level, does it actually meet a human need? Would I even read my own article? Or have I missed something else entirely? Is my newsroom diverse enough to produce something more rounded and more reflective of society? I hope you found something useful in there. I know I did. As usual, you can find the rest of our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. 
If you'd like to feature as a guest on one of our podcasts, do drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. Thanks for tuning in. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Until next time.